We're going to move into our final instalment of the DNA series. Some of you are like, finally this is over. Hopefully that's not too many of you, but it's been a wonderful series. It's been good for me as a relatively new person to look at these foundational beliefs of our church. And we're going to circle back one more time to talk about Christ-likeness, which we talked about a few weeks ago. So one more uh, look at this uh, in this series. It says this, discipleship value of Christ-likeness. Jesus Christ is the defining feature of God's will and relationship with all humankind. In Christ is found both newness of life and the highest and clearest example for godliness. People made new in Christ find him to be the source of faith, hope and love in both the inner life and in the outward actions engaging a world desperate for hope and life so whatever else following jesus means it means this an invitation into a radical life change that's just ongoing day by day being conformed to the image of christ and if this is news to you let it be news god is infatuated with changing you he is god wants us to change and he loves us just the way we are so if this is your first time at church and you're thinking, well, this, I'm not sure I fit in here, I'm not sure if I'm good enough. No, God loves you exactly where you are today, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants us to continue to explore new avenues of freedom and have the chains of our past drop off. And so as we follow Jesus, as we become open to the work of the Holy Spirit, growth happens. The old Jono progressively dies off. The arrogant me, the grumpy me, the selfish me. And, and, and I become more like Jesus in those areas. And my family might say, when is that due to happen? I, I said progressively, progressively over time, we, we become more and more like Jesus. I haven't arrived yet, but I am committed each day to becoming more like Jesus. And this is the call that is on our life. But it's love-based. You understand that. God's not in love with some future version of you. You know, when you get your life cleaned up, then you'll be acceptable to me. No, he loves you right now. And that love actually is the motivation to want to change. It's not like I need to behave well to get God's good side. I'm already on God's good side. And that is the motivation for me to want to grow and change. I'm already in his good books. And so I journey every single day to becoming more, become more and more like Jesus. I like what Tim Keller says about the gospel. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. How amazing is the grace of God that his love extends towards us today right where we are now. So today in this very moment, understand that God is not in love with some 2025 version of you. When you finally conquer those habits of saying a naughty word when you th hit your thumb with a hammer or when you finally get a hundred consecutive days of Bible reading in order or when you finally share your faith on a more consistent basis because you need to do it three times a week and your average at this present time is 2.5 and you're not quite there yet. No, no, no. God is not in love with some future version of you. He loves you right now. And that's the motivation for us to change. It's because I'm already accepted, because I'm already loved by him so deeply that I want to be 
more like Jesus. This weekend, I want to take you to the book of Philippians and um, chapter 2. And this is a church at Philippi that Paul has planted, the Apostle Paul. And they were undergoing this transformation to become more like Jesus. And Paul writes to them. It's about 10 years since he's planted this church. He can't physically visit them because he's, he's in lockdown. It's nothing to do with COVID. He's in lockdown in jail because of his faith, because of persecution. He, he's in jail. And so the best he can do is write to them. And I don't know about you. I've often wondered, why, God, did you lock your best missionary up? I mean, why not let this guy ran, ran, run rampant? He's changing the world. Why, is, why does he spend so much time in jail? And uh, we ask the same questions about our lives in different circumstances, don't we, Lord? Why not the breakthrough? Why not let me be released from this? And yet, if God let Paul run rampant, would have he stayed still long enough to write these letters to churches? I submit to you that he wouldn't. And we wouldn't have the, the blessing of the permanent record of the Word of God like we do through the Apostle Paul. So the context of Philippians 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, which starts with the word therefore. And whenever you see therefore in your Bible, you should ask, what's it? Therefore. So it's what's therefore, therefore in verse 12, it's, it's reflecting back on all that Christ has done that's been spoken of up until now, that Jesus laid aside his divine privileges and he came as a servant and came to rescue us, came to show us his love and grace. And Paul urges the church to take on this same mindset, that of Christ. Philippians 2, reading from verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even when I'm poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord and may he add his blessing to it. One key consideration for us as we think about this passage in particular is in verse 12 where it says, not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation. That's only a very small distinction, but it's a critical theological gem that will change your life if you get a hold of it. See, in Christ, we are not working from, we're not, we are, sorry, we are working from God's approval, not for God's approval. And that's a major shift that if you grab a hold of it, will change your life. In Christ, we are working from God's approval, not for God's approval. You know, the Christian life isn't just difficult, it's impossible to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. God has designed it in such a way that without his strength, without his enablement, without his spirit, without knowing his smile that's upon us, we can't possibly change and do this. And knowing his smile is the thing that is the motivating force for us to want to change. If you've tried to become a better person through human effort, you probably realise it doesn't work very well. 
it doesn't work very well. Behavioural change first starts here, in the mind, in us getting our truth up here and believing a new thing, and then we behave a new thing. So knowing I already stand accepted in the beloved, it triggers some kind of a switch in my head where I go, ah, oh, all right, I'm not working for this, I'm working from this. And, and that freedom, knowing that I'm in Christ, that the Bible uses this phrase, hidden in Christ, hidden in Christ. So when God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see Jono, he sees Jesus and therefore is pleased with me. Getting that in here and in here is life-changing. It's life-changing. It changes everything. Not just as an abstract concept, but when it actually sinks down and becomes a part of my spirit, becomes a part of my emotions, becomes a part of my whole being, I really let it sink in. It always changes my life. So it's not clean up your act so that you can approach a holy God. It's more like become who you already are. Become who you already are. Become more like Christ because you're already in Christ you've already been given favor you've already been given love you're not trying to earn it and so grab a hold of who you already are I'm not working for my salvation I'm working from I'm working from a place of already being saved it's working its way out in me so Paul doesn't write to this church and say hey guys pick up your game no he doesn't say that he says work out that salvation that's already present in you because of Christ. You might say, Jono, if this is so cut and dry, then why the next part? Do it with fear and trembling. Well, nothing about God is cut and dry. It's exciting and dynamic, actually. And so, no, it's not cut and dry. And there will always be an element, if we're dealing with the creator of the universe, that involves a sense of awe. This is not a lackadaisical walk in the park where it's just like, oh, yeah, whatever, so, so. No, no, no. If it's God, if it's the almighty God, the creator of the universe we're talking about, we need to do that relationship with fear and trembling. It's always a tough thing to explain the fear of the Lord. Uh, it, it always gets underplayed or overplayed. It's really, really hard to hold that tension of what it means to really fear the Lord. God is a loving father. And God is a fierce judge. He's both. And in the New Testament, this is not Old Testament, in the New Testament, it says, consider the kindness and severity of God. Consider the kindness and severity of God. We've got churches out there that do a great job of considering his kindness. It's all about grace. And we've got churches out there that do a great job of considering his severity. It's all about how holy he is, and you better fear God. But we're actually called to consider the kindness and severity of God, to not flip to one side or the other, but to hold these things together. Engaging with the God of the universe is always a big deal. It ought to invoke some fear and trembling in us. We remember who we are approaching our God is an awesome God. And, and, and knowing what Christ has done for me doesn't move me towards complacency. It moves me towards change by appropriating the gospel. So this, for this church, this looks like, understanding this approval of God that he put on them, it looked like dropping people-pleasing tendencies. That's what I want you to first notice from our reading. 
It's pretty radical that this young church had such an independence from their spiritual mentor, Paul. An independence in the best sense of the word. Their behavior wasn't determined by whether or not Paul was watching them. They were living out the same values regardless of whether Paul was there or not. At home, at school, at sport, wherever they were in the cafe, they were obedient to Christ in all of those spaces. We see it in verse 12. Paul says, if anything, my departure took you to another level. Now, this is quite remarkable, isn't it? You know, you probably all sort of had that vibe from people who, who comply while they're being watched and you know that as soon as they, you know, somebody turns around, they become a completely different person. This was not this church. Paul says, in the short time I was with you, likely under a year, you, you, you obeyed Christ, but in the 10 years since, you've obeyed even more. You've gone to another level. You obeyed Jesus for the 12 months I was with you. You were faithful and your faithfulness has just gone even stronger. Your faith is going from strength to strength to strength. This is what we see about this church. They're not dependent upon their spiritual mentor. They weren't doing the right thing while Paul was watching. And as soon as he turned his back, they kind of just switch off. No, no, no. They are faithful no matter what. No matter what. They weren't mysterious. They weren't one thing here and another thing there. They were faithful. In Paul's presence, they were faithful. In Paul's absence, they were faithful. Their faith was the real deal. It reminds me of a zoo story where the, um, the, the, the zoo's star attraction, which was the gorilla, passed away of old age. And they arrived at the zoo at 8 o'clock in the morning and... <clears throat> discover that this star attraction that all of the crowds come to see is actually lying flat in the cage with no life left in this poor old fellow. And a quick decision needed to be made, like and the management are racking their brains, like we've got an hour before opening time, we've got to come up with a solution real, real quick. And so the, the manager had a great idea, a light globe moment. He says, I could get one of my staff in a gorilla suit and nobody would know the difference and I'll give this guy an extra hundred dollars a day and it'll be good for him and it'll be good for us and wow this worked a treat if anything the crowds went up because people were stunned by this gorilla's human-like behavior it was just incredible the tricks and the swirls and everything this gorilla was able to do well over time uh enthusiasm began to wane a little bit and this guy in the gorilla suit a man knew that he needed to turn it up a notch you know to get the crowd excited again so he began with these new levels of tricks one of which was to walk along the the wall of between his his area and the lion's den next door and he's up there one day doing a dance and whatever and and accidentally falls down into the lion's den and he's beginning to panic you know people just think it's a gorilla but it's really a human under there and he's like, oh no, and the lions begin to come over and approach him and he's getting scared out of his mind and the one of these lions pounces on him and he begins, he, the, the outfit's no, 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 no longer a hesitation thing, he's like screaming out, help, help, help! And the lion whispers in his mouth, shush up or you'll get us both sacked. <laughs> There was not much honesty going on at that zoo. This isn't the Philippian church. 
they weren't one thing here and another thing there. They were the real deal. They were faithful when Paul was there and they were even more faithful when Paul wasn't there. Now, if ever there was a guy that would invoke a bit of pretense in us, I think it would be the Apostle Paul, wouldn't it? I mean, he's the guy that you know is penning the Bible. Wouldn't, when he's in the room, you want to make a good impression? Because you're going to make it into the permanent record of Scripture. But these people weren't motivated by Paul. They weren't out to people, please. They knew God was the ultimate person they were responsible and accountable to. And when he left, they got even better. Their faith went to another level. I find this incredible. I'm so inspired by it. For some years, I had a family member who is uh, an attender at John MacArthur's church in the United States. Now, some of you might know that name. He's a very well-respected Bible teacher, Reformed theologian, um, someone that I read in terms of commentaries and have some respect for. But he's got a large church in California, some 12,000 or something people. And my, my uh, cousin was an attender there for quite a period of time. And uh, he was very much in love with John MacArthur. And uh, I, I was stunned when he told me this, though. He said, if it were announced that next weekend John will be away, you know, preaching at a conference or being a guest speaker, somebody else. He said the crowd would drop by half. The following week there'd be hardly anybody there because John MacArthur wasn't going to be there. So half of the people decided, well, we don't need to be there either. How sad is that? That's a faith that's based on a man. Now, no matter which way you slice it up, it's not good. And I'm not blaming John MacArthur for that. That's the people's problem for following a man instead of keeping their eyes on God. How about we be a church that is more excited about the word of God than who's bringing it? Eh? How about we be a church that, that is passionate about the message rather than the messenger? So here's a notice in advance. I have family visiting this week and have booked a week of annual leave. I won't be here next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> will you will you let's be a church that, that that is unfazed hey by the human element because our ultimate devotion is to god and what he's doing in our lives let's bring a passion and a zeal and an appetite for the scriptures and even if the person up front that's presenting it isn't really doing it for you on that day will sit and feed yourself just be excited about God and what he's doing in your life. The Philippian church were like this. They weren't people pleasers. They weren't just, just putting it on for Paul's sake. They actually went to a whole other level when Paul wasn't there. They continued on their faith journey. Where does that maturity come from? I think it comes from the perception that it was God who worked to will and act his good pleasure in them as we see in verse 13 their faith was a work of god it was never built on paul anyway their faith was found in christ working from god's approval positions us to drop the people pleasing tendencies to build our faith around a human it also allows us to operate in a generous spirit this is the calling here to this church to drop the grumbling and complaining spirit that is so present in our culture. And God's love is the thing that allows us to do that. You know, if I'm not in a good place with God, I'm miserable company. And so are you, by the way. It's when we've found our internal peace with God 
that we're far easier to get along with everybody else. And when we're restless internally, guess what? That anxiety begins to play out in our human relationships as well. We start, we've got these wrong glasses on, haven't we? Where it's everybody else's problem instead of realizing that we haven't even studied our own heart in God. When I know I'm loved and I'm accepted and I'm aligned with God's amazing love upon my life, I'm far better at human relationships. And when I don't have my identity secure in God, I'm far more likely to grumble and complain. I need you to validate me. I need everybody to hear my opinion. I'll be doing everything with grumbling and complaining. I'll be looking to you to get my validation. And I think the only hope of us actually working our way out of this space of grizzling and complaining and finding everything negative in the world is to actually find our full identity in God. When I do, I, I, I have a generous spirit. I'm easy company. I'm not hard at work because I've already unburdened on him. I've found myself safe place. So when I see you, I don't need to unburden all my worries on you. I've already done that in the presence of God before the throne of grace. So what you're saying, Jono, is I'm never allowed to vent, like never ever. I'm not allowed to say to my trusted friend, I'm a little bit frustrated about this particular circumstance because Philippians 2.14 says I must do everything without grumbling and complaining. So I just must have this sweet, generous spirit every single day of my life and I'm never allowed to have a bad day. That's what you're saying, right? Well... Have a crack. <laughs> I would have two responses to that. Um, form and frequency. Form and frequency. Let's talk about frequency first. If every single time you ask me how I'm going, if every single time, oh, it's been another week of drama. Oh, there's crisis after crisis this week. If every single time it becomes an opportunity for me to roll my eyes back and, you know, and pour out a 55-minute rant on you about everything that's wrong with the world. This is frequency, isn't it? If every single time I've got a drama, then I've got a different question to ask. Why am I addicted to drama? Why have I trained my lens to just see everything that's wrong with the world? That's a perception issue. My receptors have been trained wrong. If every single time, if every single time you see me, there's something wrong. There's another crisis this week. The bottom has just fallen out yet again. If, if the last 10 times you've checked in, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10, I've been bad, I've been lousy, I've been grumbling and complaining. That, that's a problem. That's a frequency issue. And then there's the form element. See, there's a difference, isn't there, between honesty and grumbling. And honesty's okay, and grumbling isn't. Honesty's okay. It's definitely okay from time to time to say, hey, it's been a really tough week, would you please pray for me? That's fine. That's being honest. If you, if you faked it, that would be being dishonest. If you said, oh, wonderful week, praising the Lord yet again. That's not helping anybody. You're not going to grow close to anyone in the body of Christ by that kind of shallowness. There's times to bring the honest version of the story, but this is about form, how you do it. How do you do that? Do you do it with a grumbling and complaining spirit? That sounds quite different when I 
grumble and complain. So when I bring you my honesty, I need your prayer. And that's healthy. But when I bring you my grumbles, I need your pity. And that's unhealthy. So part of what we're asking as we come into community and, or friendship or whatever it might be, and people ask how we're going, we've got, to, we've got to actually reflect back on ourselves from time to time and go, am I looking for prayer or am I looking for pity? Because looking for pity ain't helping anybody. No one's inspired by a complainer. Look for honesty. Yes, I want you to pray for me if I bring that. But pity, that's not helping me and it's not helping the other person. The other person will feel sorry, sure. Sorry that they dared ask how I was going. <laughs> if I've found God's approval, if I understand that in Christ, my whole life, my whole worldview is working from God's favour and approval on my life. I've found my refuge. My identity has a home. And I've been under the total reset that Christ brings into my life, that I'm no longer a victim. I'm a victor in Jesus. And I can avoid the grumble-bumble spirit that's so prevalent in our culture. Verse 15 says, I'll be blameless and pure, a child of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then I can begin shining the love of Christ among people around me. I become like a star in the skies. I hold firmly to the word of life. See how much this shedding of the grumbling spirit matters? It's the foundation of our Christian witness, actually. Nobody gains inspiration from complaining. But if I can shed this, look what happens when you and I drop the, the cranky attitude. We become stars. That's what it says here. We become like stars in a dark world. Working from God's approval allows me to drop the people-pleasing tendencies, operate with a generous spirit and shine like a star in a dark world. As we drop complaining and grumbling and arguing, and an opportunity emerges to be a cultural standout. In the language of Philippians 2, a star. You're a star not because you're the smartest person in your company or because you've won the MVP in your sporting team or because you have musical abilities. You're a star in the, in the eyes of God if you drop a complaining spirit. That by itself will be enough. You say, how can that be such a big deal? Because so many people in our culture live at that level of grumbling and complaining. And so if you just drop that, you'll actually automatically go to a whole other level. You'll be a standout. People that don't grumble or complain are rare. They know they have God's smile, so they see the world differently. They have this confidence infused by God. In 2019, in the pre-COVID world, it seems like not a couple of years ago, it seems like 20 years ago now. But in 2019, Yvonne and I had opportunity to uh, visit USA, her family, and I did some training whilst over there. And so I took long, sleeves, uh, long service leave from the church I was at at the time. We had an extended break in the US. And one of the opportunities I had was to train under a guy named Larry Osborne. Wonderful, wonderful guy. He's the pastor of a mega church in San Diego, 12 or 13,000 people. And this was a masterclass, so a small group um, and opportunity to interact with him and ask questions and so on. And over the two days I spent with Larry Osborne, he would say to our group, probably 10 times, maybe 12 times. He says, if you guys are in Christ, 
you've got nobody to impress and nothing to prove. If you're in Christ, you've got nobody to impress and nothing to prove. If you're in Christ, I'll say it again, I hope it begins to sink in, you've got nobody to impress and nothing to prove. This reflects back onto our first point, doesn't it? We can drop the people-pleasing tendencies. We've got nobody to impress, nothing to prove. We can begin to live with a generous spirit because that infuses confidence in us. And Larry does that. He whistles as he goes. And then this third one, we begin to shine like stars. When I get my identity in Christ sorted, I don't become arrogant. I become attractive, actually, because there's a humility there. Whilst there's a confidence, there's also a humility that, that undergirds that. And, and my life has an attraction about it to the outside world and this is amazing this is where christian witness begins in my very first message ever at axis i talked about light and i spoke about how jesus said you are the light of the world and jesus said that in the affirmative he didn't say try to be he said you are you are this is the present reality you are the light of the world and so the only hope of the world having any light is via us yeah you are the light of the world. The people of God are the light of the world. The only chance of the world being lit up then is through the people of God. I find it amazing here in Philippians 2.15 where we are placed as light. Notice what it says. You are placed as stars among them. Among them. Among a crooked and perverse generation. You're among them. It's a profound choice of words when you stop to think about it because I probably want to push back and go, Paul, you know, this whole star language, a little bit too full on. I mean, call me a match, call me a torch maybe, but, but lamp at best, you know, but, but star, isn't that a little bit over the top, Paul? You are the stars amongst a crooked and perverse generation. And Paul would go, no, no, the Holy Spirit's directed me to write it as it is. So I got the description right, you're a star, and I got the location right as well, you're among them. This is puzzling because where are stars normally? Above us. Paul says, no, no, don't live like that. Don't, don't look down on sinners going, oh, you, you filthy people down there. No, no, no. You're a star among, beside, with people amongst a crooked and perverse generation we're not above them we are among them and one of my greatest frustrations of my whole life is when i hear the people of god grumbling and complaining which is exactly what the text here tells us not to do but grumbling and complaining about how dark the world is getting how could that ever be a darkness problem Darkness is never the problem. Darkness is just the absence of light, right? That's all darkness is. So if we have a darkness problem, what problem do we really have? The people of God are no longer shining like stars among them. If things have turned dark, whose problem is it? Should we shout at the darkness to try and fix it? Or should we get on with being the light? If we want this room to fall dark, let's do that for a minute. All we need to do is turn the lights off. And as we bring the light down, 
guess what? The room turns dark. Now, often our response to that as churches, and this is what saddens me so much, is we just get more and more grumpy, don't we? Oh, we blame it on the politicians and we blame it on the people down the road that voted for a certain thing and, and, and we're, we're, we're barking and complaining and essentially, in a nutshell, screaming at the dark instead of just saying, let there be lights. Let's turn the lights on. Let's turn the light back on. Is it a darkness problem? Uh-uh. It's a light problem. Turn your light on. If your neighbourhood's dark, turn the light on. If your circle's pretty dark and getting darker, which potentially is, then turn the light on. Darkness is just the absence of light. You might have heard it said, evil will prevail when good people do nothing. And if the culture's awfully dark, it's because God's people have got apathetic and we've somehow turned our light off. Don't turn your light off. Shine as stars among them. Oh, Jono, but, but, but the people around me are so bad. Yeah, they're a crooked and perverse generation. We just read it. That's why they need some, some light. And they need it among them. Among them. We shine among them. We know we're in Christ. We know we have God's approval. We know we've been given an inside lane because of Jesus. And so we're no longer looking to anybody else to validate us. Not the Apostle Paul, no other human leader. We've found our identity in Christ. We drop the complaining and grumbling spirit. We're not out to argue our way forward. And as we do that, with this generous spirit, we become cultural standouts. We shine like light amongst a dark culture. As the music team come back up, we can ask where to from here. And I love this quote from Susanna Wesley. She says, there's two things to do about the gospel. Believe it and behave it. Believe it and behave it. You have your mind shift go on and then you let that sink into your heart and you begin to let it flow out through your hands, through your life. What I've failed to mention until now deliberately is, is a, a promise, a statement in the, in the earlier chapter in Philippians. Same book, same people, same letter. I am certain that God who began the good work in you will continue this work until the day it is finally finished when Christ Jesus returns. Let me read that again. Let it sink in. I am certain, I am confident, not I hope, not maybe. I'm confident that God who began the good work in you will continue this work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ returns. Believe it. Behave it. Begin to live it. Know that it's God who is doing this work in us. Stop questioning. I wonder if God really loves me today. What more could he do to show you that his favour is already upon you? So we stop questioning his love. We stop questioning his call. We stop questioning his invitation. We grab a hold of his outstretched hand and we say, Lord, I'm coming. I'm following you, Jesus. 100% 
I'm in from this day forward. I will live out that approval that you have placed on me. It will begin to flow through me. It will release me from my insecurities about where I fit in and whether people like me or not. And it will free me from negative self-talk. And I'll have a generous spirit. And I'll speak forth words of life. And I'll shine like a star. Would you stand for prayer? Thank you, Lord, that your call comes to us from a place of acceptance. Your love is the motivation for us to change. We thank you that because of this, we don't have to be negative. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be pessimistic about the future. Lord, you have given us your grace. You have given us your favor. And that, that is the foundation of our life. God loves us just the way we are. But he loves us too much to leave us there. And he is determined to make you more like Jesus. So again in this moment, we say, here I am, Lord. We decide to trust you. We decide that your intentions for us are good. It's not us deciding, you've already decided that, but we're saying we agree. We agree. And we decide to put our life in your hands today. And we decide to move forward on the basis that we are accepted, we are favoured, and our life is changing for the better. Let it be in Jesus' name we pray.